This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Get ready to hear the truth about America on a show that's not immune to the facts with your host, Dan Bongino. Hey, thanks for tuning into the podcast. You know, we appreciate it. These are some of the best interviews we've done on my radio show from the week. You can always find them on my weekly uh, or daily uh, radio show during the week, 12 to 3 Eastern time. If you want to do a, catch a station finder, go to Bongino.com. Look at the station finder right there. You can see where to listen. We really appreciate it. Henry Repeating Arms manufactures a line of high-quality rifles, shotguns, and revolvers you can be proud to own. You talk about people who love America, true patriots, Dedicated to this country, so much so their products are made in America with parts and materials from America. They use old-world craftsmanship combined with cutting-edge technology to deliver reliability and accuracy you can trust in any situation. They're easy to use and maintain, making them an excellent choice for both novice and experienced shooters. Whether you're a hunter, sports shooter, or looking for land or home defense, Henry has over 200 models so you can find the firearm that's right for you. There's also new releases throughout the year. Every purchase is backed by a lifetime warranty, and the company's owner, Anthony Imperato, also gives his personal guarantee for 100% satisfaction. Make sure you go to their website. It's henryusa.com and order their free catalog. They'll mail it with free decals on a list of dealers in your area. That's henryusa.com for a free catalog and decals. That's henryusa.com for a free catalog and decals. You're going to love these firearms like I do. First up, today's interview with Senator Rand Paul. We talked about the tyranny of big tech, sadly, ongoing tyranny of big tech. It's getting worse. What he's doing to stop it and also his recent confrontation with Dr. Fauci. Check this one out. All right, let me get right to my next guest. Uh, a, a, just a great guy. I've been a real advocate for liberty and freedom. A guy I have tremendous respect for up on the Hill, you know, who never sold out his values or ours. Um, Senator Rand Paul, welcome back to the show. Thanks for taking the time. Hey, Dan. Thanks for having me. Sure. So, Senator, you have been one of the uh, loudest voices against this growing tyranny of big tech. Um, I saw the article in the Washington Examiner today about a move you recently made uh, moving over to Rumble, a platform. Obviously, I have an interest in. I've said that often. Um, but your statement was was spot on how. Yeah, listen, I mean, they're a private company and they can do what they want. But the, the, the heart of the matter, Senator, is these are important companies. Just because they're private doesn't make them less important. They're the new public square, and they really are impacting things like elections. I mean, when you ban an article on Twitter about Hunter Biden right before an election and post-election polls so that people would show that people would have voted differently if they had that information, that's pretty serious stuff. So tell us what you did, why you did it, and what you think the solution to this big tech problem is. Well, my goal is to get rid of and get off of all of big tech eventually. I really, you know, a lot of them are not worth their weight. And I really want to disassociate myself from all of them. But I thought I'd start with the worst. And I think YouTube is the worst of all the censors. They've taken my stuff down repeatedly. They actually took down a speech that I gave on the Senate floor. So this is a speech that's constitutionally protected. 
and yet they thought that their sensors were somehow smart enough or gifted enough or <laughs> omnipresent, omniscient, whatever you want to say. They really thought, oh, well, we're important enough to edit people and to censor people for their words they, that they spoke on the Senate floor. So that, that just led me to think, you know what? I, I don't want to have any part with these people. I've said over and over in probably 100 interviews in, in writing and on video that cloth masks don't work, and they don't. All of the evidence points towards that. Peer-reviewed studies, randomized controlled studies show the cloth masks don't work. And actually, other people are saying it now, too. We've got Biden officials saying it. We've got even crazy CNN talking heads saying it. <laughs> there was a woman, this woman, who's been terrible as far as supporting all the mandates. She came out the other day and said, oh, well, cloth masks are merely decoration, facial decoration. And that's yeah, true. But how come they've been wanting to mandate them for the last two years? Yeah. Yeah, that was Leanna Wen, who was, used to be the head of uh, Planned Parenthood. I mean, she's no no conservative. Uh, and yeah, she finally acknowledged it. And, you know, Senator, uh, we're talking to Senator Rand Paul, you know, real advocate for liberty and freedom. We need more of you up there. What, what's so disturbing about all this is the um, is the, the, the gaslighting. I mean, in the genuine sense of what the term means strategically, to lie, to lie often and isolate people from the truth. I mean, they accuse us, Senator, conservatives and libertarians of misinformation campaigns, yet it's them the entire time who keep saying things that are not backed up by the science. I'll give you just a quick example. You probably heard Joe Biden's speech yesterday or portions of it. He said at one point that this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Senator, you're, you're a medical doctor. That, that, that's not that's scientifically absolutely inaccurate. This is not a pandemic of the unvaccinated. His feelings don't matter. That's just not true. Well, it's false on so many fronts because so many people actually voluntarily chose to be vaccinated. Most of the world over age 50 is vaccinated. It's inevitable that most of the people in the hospital have been vaccinated because most of the world's been vaccinated. So it's been wrong on so many levels, but it's also this this idea of persecution, that there are sort of we are going to have segregated uh, society where these people that are lesser than human. And I think one of the most awful impulses I've seen, and the Internet has some awful people on it, but really the people who have come forward and glorified in people's death, someone dies from a disease, uh. disease that is nature, and they say, oh, well, they weren't vaccinated. They kind of deserved it. And they glorify in their deaths. These are the kind of people that I don't want to be associated with. And it's sort of the reason to get off of YouTube and maybe eventually the others. You know, the head of C, the CEO of Twitter, you remember he comes out and he says, well, First Amendment doesn't apply to Twitter. Well, that, that, that's true. And yet the thing is, is what a close-minded sort of arrogant statement that uh, he, he, he believes that he can censor us and he can, you know, these are the kind of small-minded people that I really don't, don't want to associate with them if they think they know the truth so much that they're not willing to hear any other opinions. That's the kind of small-minded, close, close-minded person that really I, I have no use for. And, Senator, you being a student of history, I mean, you have to wonder, like, what kind of buffoons these people are. I mean, this, this has never worked. I mean, whether you look at the solidarity movement in Poland or, or any effort to institute totalitarianism, efforts to crush free speech have never – they're not playing the long game here. I don't know if it's some emotional satisfaction they get out of, you know, torturing us and making us feel terrible, but, you know, and uh, getting people kicked off and canceling them. But this really isn't a long-term strategy. And I, that leads to my next question. 
you've had kind of an ongoing uh, conflict, if, if, I'm, if I can call that, with Dr. Anthony Fauci, who himself has spewed a lot of misinformation out there. You've called him out on gain-of-function research. But we, we got some news recently about him and Francis Collins and their emails and what appear to be a colluding effort to attack these doctors involved with this great Barrington Declaration, who had said sensible things like isolate the high risk and these lockdowns may not work. So what I'm getting at here is if we win in 2022 and take the Senate and the House back, which it looks likely, knock on wood here, is there a possibility of investigations here? I mean, this is serious stuff, using your government perch, you know, to attack people who put out information that's scientifically sound at taxpayer expense. That's pretty disturbing. Without question, if we take over the Senate in 2022 and if I become a chairman of a committee, I will use my subpoena power to bring in Fauci, all of his documents, Collins, and if they were trying to cover up the origins of where this virus came from, if they were trying to cover up any link to the Wuhan lab, if they were conspiring to vilify other doctors on the tax paradigm, we're going to find out about it. Now, we've gotten some information on these emails, but they send us emails and they send us completely redacted. They black out all the words in some of the conversations as if this was the Manhattan Project and these were atomic secrets. They're blacking them out because they know what they've done is wrong. And I do think there was a concerted effort to vilify, first of all, people who uh, had the temerity to say that the virus could have come from the Wuhan lab, but then also people like Scott Atlas, Jay Bhattacharya, the people who were saying, yeah. Martin Kaldorf, the people who were saying, you know what, we can't stop everybody from getting this. Let's look at who's at most at risk, the elderly and those overweight. And let's try to protect those people from dying and let's put our resources towards where where the disease is actually attacking. And they were vilified for something that really, I think, is a very, very reasonable and responsible position and still is something we should consider. You know, Senator, you just brought up something that's kind of a soft spot with me. It's this redactions game they play. I mean, it seems like right now you, an elected lawmaker, you're one of just 100 people in the United States Senate. It's not a butt-kissing exercise. It's a fact. You're one of the most powerful people in the country. You're an elected senator in the state of Kentucky. How is it that the Senate, the, uh, the House, and even the presidency under Donald Trump was subordinated to this federal bureaucratic swamp, uh, this redactions game. Like you just mentioned, redactions in these emails of key information. We saw this game before, Senator. It's not the first time with regards to the Spygate scandal and the collusion hoax where they would release a bunch of emails and say, but you can't see this. Uh, how is it that, that people like yourself who've been elected by the people in a constitutional republic that your power is being subjugated to the power of people who've never been elected or gotten one vote any day of their entire life. How do, how do, how do we fight back? And realize it's maybe even worse than you describe. Most of the emails that have been revealed have been from private entities suing under the Freedom of Information Act. They haven't been because I sent a letter to Fauci and asking for it, which we have. We've sent dozens of letters to the FDA, to the CDC, asking for information. Small Business Administration won't even respond to us. They just completely ignore the elected officials. The way government worked in the past is Republicans and Democrats would come together when they were being flouted by the executive branch, no matter which party, and they would support putting pressure on the administration until the information came. Now it is so partisan that not one Democrat 
is interested in understanding whether the virus came from a lab in Wuhan. Not one Democrat is interested in an investigation as to whether or not we should fund research that creates viruses not found in nature that could wipe out our civilization. Not one Democrat is interested because they've become so partisan on this issue. Senator, we're talking to Senator Rand Paul. Last question, and I'll, I'll let you run. Thank you for your time. Uh, this gain-of-function question, where this virus originated, seems to me to be the most important question of our time. Um, I had a, uh, a uh, doctor, medical doctor, on my show. He wants to come back, right, Jim, too? He had spoken, that, uh, he had spoken of the Nipah virus being investigated in some of these same labs in China and Wuhan. This is a virus with a lethality rate, you know, 30, 40 times that of coronavirus. Senator, this is literally life or death stuff. I'm not speaking in figurative terms. The point about gain of function is not here to say, aha, uh-huh, gotcha, you know, Nelson Munstyle from The Simpsons. This is if we don't get to the bottom of what we were funding in China, what the BSL levels are and what they're doing now, the next outbreak of a virus could make this look like an episode episode of Romper Room. This is the critical question of our time. Are we ever going to get answers from the people involved? Well, you know, I passed an amendment to forbid any more U.S. money from going to Wuhan. It passed in the end, unanimously in the Senate. Now, Nancy Pelosi's holding it up, and so it hasn't become law yet. But I think there is some movement, even on the Democrats, to be embarrassed by all the money that was going to the Chinese Communist government, have shown themselves not to be trustworthy, and also have actually published research of uh, viruses not found in nature that have amazing amounts of lethality. So, yeah, we, we should stop it over there, but we should also consider whether it should be funded here or any part of the world. I really think there needs to be an international disease convention where countries come together and maybe voluntarily sign a compact the same way we do with like nuclear non-proliferation and things we voluntarily decide you know what this is just too dangerous to mess with because we could and they have experimented with viruses that have 50 percent mortality there's no reason in the world you should create a virus that's a new amalgamation of two different viruses not found in nature where one of the viruses you're experimenting with has 50 percent mortality that is just a death wish And we have several professors who've been making this argument way before Fauci came on the scene, way before this became politicized. And they're not Republicans. They're probably liberal Democrats. But they are scientists who are saying, my goodness, you could wipe out civilization. And yet in Congress, I have been trying to get a committee hearing, a single committee hearing on investigating this type of research. The Democrats have steadfastly opposed it because they're all in camp with Fauci. Whatever Fauci says, they do. It's all about vaccination, and nobody's willing to think about how this pandemic started and whether or not Fauci and the U.S. government may have been complicit. Well, it sounds like you're committed to changing that. So uh, thank you, Senator Paul, for staying on top of this issue. Thanks a lot for your time. We really appreciate it. Senator Rand Paul, thank you very much. Thanks, Tim. You got it. Uh, folks, I, I mean, Jim, can you imagine that? What, 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 what scientist on planet Earth? You hear what Senator Paul just said? That it's not just Nipah, they're investigating other viruses with a 50% mortality. What could possibly be the risk reward for investigating and creating a virus like that? Oh, Jim, I got an idea. Let's create a virus with 50% mortality. So maybe we can research a vaccine to the virus we just created. This is crazy. This is like something out of a, a, a novel for stupid people. Like a science novel so dumb only idiots would buy it. My gosh. Well, I usually don't. There's that much commentary after an interview, but I, he said that it like blows my mind. What kind of an idiot? Let's create a virus that could kill half the planet. Why? 
so we can do research on a virus that could kill half the planet if it were to happen in nature. Oh, oh okay, that sounds smart. <laughs> oh, my gosh, you have to be an idiot, an idiot to do that. All right, I got to run. I got to take a break. I'm Dan Bongino. That was Senator Rand Paul. It was on the radio show a couple weeks ago. We've got a great interview coming up with Sidney Watson from The Blaze. If you don't know Sidney Watson, <laughs> you'll want to after this radio interview. Uh, check this out. You don't want to miss this one. But first, let me tell you about our next sponsor. With cyber attacks on the rise, protecting your data security is more important than ever. So why is Congress considering a law that puts your data at greater risk of being hacked and exposed to foreign networks? The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill shifts billions in consumer spending to less secure payment networks, all so that corporate megastores can make bigger profits. Don't let Durbin Marshall steal your data. Visit handsoffmyrewards.com security and tell your senators to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Paid for by Electronic Payments Coalition. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Sydney Watson of The Blaze. She is a native of Australia. She talked to us about the police state, her home country sadly become, and the policies we're putting in place for that same thing to come here. Here, check this out. All right, let me welcome to the show for the first time. I'm really excited about having uh, her on. Sydney Watson, uh, thanks for joining us today, taking the time. We really appreciate it. You know, thanks for having me. I'm excited. I, I was just thinking, I don't think we've ever spoken not once so this is very exciting no which is a travesty and a a moral not a venal sense a moral sin Uh, i love your videos i just trip out on them i used to work as you know probably know or may know the blaze tv before it was it was like cr tv and it's such a you are the host of a show everyone should watch it's called you are here at the blaze tv and if you don't know sydney watson you better get to know her because she is awesome hilarious funny good, entertaining, educational. Um, your videos are great. Welcome to the show. Glad to have you. So well, first thing I wanted to ask you about, you know, mm. you're Australian, right? It says Aussie on your thing. So I, I'm, I hope I'm not out. Of, it says Aussie right here, right? I'm not wrong. So you are Australian, correct? Yes. My accent is dying at a rapid rate. It depresses me. But yes, I am an Australian, albeit a okay. bad one. I, ne- I only made this mistake one time. I traveled to Australia. I was in Canberra. And at uh, Bondi Beach once, and um, I mistakenly uh, said, oh, is that an Australian accent? And the guy said, I'm a Kiwi, man. He was very upset, so I never <laughs> presume anything. So what is going on in your home country of Australia? We're going to play a video um, at some point later in the show of a uh, MP over there. I don't even remember his name, Mark something or whatever. Mark McGowan. McGowan. And you mm-hmm. saw it, and he's doing a public service announcement. And Sydney, he translates English into English with an aboriginal translator. What is going on? What happened to this wonderful country? Why is it turning into a police state? 
Okay, so I, I think the first thing that a lot of Americans seem to think is that Aussies have and always will be like America. And the reality is that I'm not surprised by anything that we're seeing back home at the moment. Um, the video that you're referring to, I saw that as well. And it was it's just it's so tragic. Uh, and so I'm glad that you're going to play it because it's humiliating, I think, for a lot of us. And for people who don't know the Aboriginal population, um, there, I think there's fewer than uh, 1% of the population are Aboriginal, but they do have sort of their own little dialect and they also have their own languages and what have you but this video is just disgusting in my view um, and it's, <laughs> it's, it's so kind of bad. insulting too because it's almost because aboriginals understand english they're not you know it's it's not like they have mental problems and they don't know what we're saying um so this video <laughs> is just really bad but insofar as what's going on in show you got to remember that it is a commonwealth country it's based around um you know like english common law and things like that so a lot of what's going on is predicated on the fact that aussies are not not super stoked with the idea of freedom. In fact, they value security over freedom. That's just something that people have to remember. Yeah, I mean, uh, that kind of surprises me. It really does. I mean, I think we, uh, you know, uh, listen, a lot of us just, we haven't traveled over there. Many of us, I was over there for a bit. But even the guys I talked to over there, the cops from, oh, is it Asio or whatever, they were really like rugged kind of independent, yeah. what you would think of what a stereotypical Australian, you know, a rugged, tough guy would be. And the, to see people so quickly, many of them, not all, I get a lot of, we have a huge audience in Australia, I kid you not. Um, but to see many people just acquiesce so easily. And, and it brings me to my second question here. You know, it, it just seems like this ongoing fear porn campaign by leftists all over the world here, Australia, the UK, um, all over the world, that this fear porn campaign over coronavirus has been very useful. I was scrolling through your social media feed before the show and you had a great tweet. You're like, listen, man, I've been living my life for like two years. Haven't had it yet. Great. Whatever. But, I, you know, I'm just doing my thing. I'll, you know, <laughs> you guys can live in fear if you want, but uh, I've only got one shot at this whole life thing and uh, that's it. So I applaud you for doing your thoughts on the whole fear porn thing. Well, okay. So again, if we're talking about it in the Aussie context, there's not a great diversification of Australian media. So here you actually have the ability to have the Dan Bongino show. You have the ability to have the Blaze and all these other platforms. Australia's got, what, 27 million people, which is around 15 times less the population size of the United States. So the diversification of ideas that Aussies have access to, it's not, it, there's not a great deal of them. So obviously if you have the majority of the media telling you how horrifying everything is, they're going to participate in that. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming we're in the same boat here where I've just gone for the last two years. I personally have been like, what am I doing? This is so dumb. I'm not putting a mask on. I'm not going to live in the pod and eat the bugs. I'm not doing any of this stuff. But I think the problem is that when you have politicians and the media and all these other entities telling you day in and day out how horrifying everything is, if you're not someone who's super tuned in to, you know, what dissenting voices are saying, you're probably going to buy into it. And I feel bad for those people because there is a lack of capacity in society to think outside of the same old status quo talking points. And so I pity people rather than feel mad towards them like I, I was feeling for a hot second there. And in the Aussie context, I watch my family and I, I feel really bad because I'm trying to get my family out of Australia at the moment to get them to move to the United States. And because they, they want to rip all their hair out they're like why are we living among the sheep what are the sheep doing this is so not fun yeah we're talking to sydney watson she's on the blaze tv she hosts a show called you are here it's excellent uh the clips are 
just fantastic. Highly, highly recommended. A disclosure, I used to work there. I don't anymore, but there are a lot of great people over there, Sydney included. Let me move on to another question here with Biden. Um, so Joe Biden earlier today, uh, you may not have heard it, but it's the same thing you've heard a thousand times from from uh, th- a thousand times from leftists was calling for social media companies um, to censor content he didn't agree with on coronavirus. Now, Sydney, I find that talking point from the left uh, that I hear often just kind of fascinating because it's people like you and I who've been, you know, uh, uh, the things we've been discussing eventually came to fruition and came to be true that masks were largely ineffective, that maybe we should ask questions about the vaccine, despite you just taking it. It's face value is going to be 90 percent effective Um, things like, hey, these lockdowns don't really seem too effective. They don't really seem to be doing things. So we were actually the truth tellers. And the irony of that, again, you have the most powerful man in the world now calling for social media companies to squash content you and I put out that was largely predictive of where we are right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I was watching a, a press conference that he gave this morning where he, he was saying, social media platforms, I implore you, you know, get rid of all the disinformation and misinformation. Um, honestly, again, I'm not really surprised. And it, when I was living in D.C., actually, Biden's um, campaign manager was my landlord. And so I, I remember the few Ooh. conversations that, <laughs> yeah, the few conversations that my housemate who works on the Hill, she and I would have with these people. I remember thinking, God, if you're the future of this country, where, where I can't throw on your show, but where <laughs> basically. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, hearing these sort of talking points coming particularly from uh, the president and some of these other, you know, big players in, uh, in our political space, it worries me in the sense that what you said is 100% correct. If we're making predictions or if people are making predictions about the trajectory of the country or, you know, some of these policies and mandates and whatnot, and there's a kernel of truth to them, why wouldn't we want to have access to that? Basically, what I see this as, uh, it's, it's like a regime shift where they've gone from, okay, we can't control people by, uh, you know, feeding them the narrative. What we have to do instead is shut down their access to conflicting points of information. This is what I was just saying about how Australia is with this diversification of ideas. They don't have it. And so therefore, it's much easier to control people. I think what we're heading towards, at least in part, is probably that. But, you know, in the American context, which doesn't fill me with confidence, Dan, I'm not going to lie. Yeah, no, it doesn't for me either. And it kind of leads to my next question. You know, when I was younger, I had a beaten up old Ford Escort. I was 18, 19, and I had a bumper sticker on the back. It said, question authority. Uh, I mean, when I was a kid, I wasn't I, I wasn't a Republican, kind of a doctrinaire Republican, but I definitely wasn't a liberal. And I always mm. questioned authority. I mean, that was kind of the young kid thing to do. You know, you want to be rebellious. But I'm wondering now with all these uh, ridiculous mandates and the masking, are we creating uh, are we creating a generation of new libertarians? I mean, this can't only be frustrating for us. I mean, there have to be these these kids have to be out there thinking, gosh, I put a lot of faith in government and it's not quite working out like everything they told us was going to happen didn't happen. And it really makes me wonder if the culture is shifting. Yeah, I think in terms of the Zoomers, in terms of Gen Z, I don't hold my breath. Uh, maybe I maybe I think differently to a lot of other people when it comes to this. I so desperately want Gen Z to be the most conservative generation or the you know the most free thinking generation, but I don't know if that's going to be the reality. Simply because they have TikTok, which is a mental illness factory. They have all these social media <laughs> platforms. They're probably the most narcissistic generation. Maybe even more so than than my generation, the millennials. Uh, and what worries 
me is that because they have grown up in this time of, what do they call it now, the mass formation psychosis, um, I don't know yeah. if that's something that they can so easily break away from. So I feel like if anybody's being turned more towards libertarianism, I think that must be the millennials, because I'm seeing that a lot in my own cohort where I have conversations with people and they're like, oh yeah, I, I used to think this, and now I don't think that at all. And I'm like, well, that's good. That's usually what happens when you start paying you know, an exorbitant amount in taxes. Uh, but I think Gen yeah. Z, I, I don't know, maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm a, a pessimist. I say this when you are here all the time. I'm always like, I am the pessimist in the room. I don't have high hopes for Gen Z. Um, they've just been cotton wooled too much, and I don't think they know any different. Yeah, I'm not sure you're a pessimist. Maybe more of a realist. And, uh, I, you know, I... I, I hope I'm I hope I'm I'm right there that we are creating a generation of libertarians. But, um, you know, I'm a realist and I understand politics is downstream of culture, as Andrew Breitbart said, mm. and we've lost the culture. I mean, the institutions that are most powerful, academia, sports, entertainment, like you said, social media, TikTok are all pretty much dominated by leftists. Uh, last question. I'll let you go. We're talking to Sidney Watson, fantastic host on the Blaze TV of a show called You Are Here. Cancel culture. I, I've. I have made predictions a while ago. I think are coming true right now. That cancel culture by its simple arithmetic is cannibalistic. It can't continue because it won't. People like you and I don't give a damn about cancel culture. We just don't. I mean, I get boycotted yeah. every other day. Uh, if they beat one company, five other companies sign up. Um, I just really don't care. I don't give a damn. I don't listen to these people. I give them the double barrel middle finger and I drop F-bombs on them all the time. Uh, so we don't care. So what did they do? They started canceling each other. Um, you know, the, the Dave Chappelle's of the world and others. And you're seeing like the math doesn't work, Sydney. Like you're seeing Steve Harvey today speak out and you're seeing more and more Chappelle's and Harvey's like, hey, I, this isn't my bag of donuts, man. Your thoughts on cancel culture, where you see it going? Well, cancel culture bothers me a lot because I think that as a general rule, people are entitled to their ideas, even if those ideas are prejudiced, you know, whatever. And I don't like the fact that cancel culture revolves around trying to control individual thought, because that's really what it comes down to. When you cancel a Dave Chappelle for making a joke, it's because he had an individual thought, he articulated the thought, we didn't like the thought, and now we can never hear the thought again. That is a problem to me going forward, because I want to live in a society where people feel that they can have their ideas, that they're entitled to their ideas. And now obviously where I draw the line is you don't get to carry those those ideas out in public where you hurt other people or do whatever. You know, we all have the right to, to walk around and not, you know, be stabbed in the face. Um, but insofar as cancel culture goes, I think that so this happened to us recently. We had a guest on You Are Here who I vehemently disagreed with over some of his stances on the female population where he likened their place in society to that of Saudi Arabia. It should be like that in Saudi Arabia. That obviously bothers me because I, I feel that Islam is reasonably corrosive as an ideology. Um, and so I thought, you know, having this person on, this is a great way to highlight their ideas and then shoot them down. You shoot down bad ideas with better ideas and, and you dismiss them by shining a light on them. So cancel culture basically takes away the capacity to do that because it shuts down the, the point of conversation. That to me is awful. Yeah, also canceling people as a general rule is dumb. So, yeah. yeah, it doesn't yeah. work. The Streisand effect <laughs> yeah. is real. Sydney, 100%. I got to run. I want to get it. Yeah, I want to get a plug in for your show again. Sydney Watson, Blaze TV. The show is called You Are Here. I hope you'll join us again. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks a lot for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. You got it, folks. That was Sydney Watson. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. That's a, a very, very sage analysis of where cancel culture is going to go.
You're not going to put the beach ball theory. You're not going to crush those ideas, keep the beach ball underwater. It's going to pop up somewhere. What a great voice in the conservative sphere. Uh, Sydney, uh, Sydney Watson, she's terrific. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX is clipped. Now streaming only on Hulu. You care about George Soros and his influence on liberal politics? Well, next up, we talk to Matt Palumbo as an author. He's an author. He has a new book uh, out about George Soros called The Man Behind the Curtain. It's Matt's expose of the work of Soros, how it's influencing politics in the United States. Pay very close attention to this. All right, I want to welcome back to the show for, I think, the second time. I'm not sure. He uh, is the editor over at BonginoReport.com, the conservative alternative to the Drudge Report. He's also a prolific writer, a guy who writes a lot on my website and does uh, quite a few books. His newest book has been hot. I have been one of the publishers uh, on these, but not have been. I am one of the publishers on this book. And it is flying off the shelves. It's about George Soros. It's called Man Behind the Curtain. Inside the Secret Network of George Soros, my friend Matt Palumbo. Matt, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me back on. And uh, yeah, this one has really been flying off the shelves. I think we, uh, I mean, it was just pre-orders until today, and I sold more than the past two books I did combined just in pre-orders. So uh, <laughs> definitely a lot of uh, interest in this. It was a lot of, lot of work, but definitely worth, uh, worth it in the end, I well, think. there is a lot of interest in the, you know, it's interesting, uh, Matt. You know, on the right, Remember the whole controversy years ago of fake controversy? Oh, the Koch brothers. Oh, my God. You know, uh, oh, they, yeah, they yeah. give money. So George Soros, who happens to be, uh, you know, a, a leftist who's, the, you know, been involved in the business world, he gives a lot of money to causes. And a lot of these causes are of the public interest. So Soros is therefore of the public interest. So let's get right to the book first. What do you think the most important uh, part of the book here? Tell me what it covers and what do you think the most important part of the book is given um, today's current political landscape and all the failures of the left during the Biden administration early on. Yeah, so just to get, I just kind of you know run through the table of contents really quick to give an overview. You know, I start with sort of a biographical sketch of Soros and just kind of you know his history and who he is as a human being. Um, I, you know, one of the oddest things about him, and perhaps the uh, only redeeming factor can call it that, is that he is a very uh, openly an egomaniac and is very uh, open about what his goals are, and you know, sort of just comes short of saying that his goal really is influence for the sake of influence. Um, now, after that, oh, and also in that chapter, too, I kind of I cover that infamous uh, 60 Minutes sketch where he talks about collaborating with the Nazis in Hungary. And, and it's one of those few things he's admitted that he's tried to walk back on and the media has tried to claim is out of context. And, you know, I, I dive into the, the whole interview. I actually found um, Soros's own father wrote about that exact incident, uh, and it completely contradicts what his son says in his defense. So that, I got a lot in there on that, that it's kind of juicy. Uh, I move on after that. And sort of a theme of each chapter is a different sphere of influence that Soros uh, is influenced in. So I have one on just his, you know, higher education connections, just one on his influence in the media and the various publications he's connected to there, uh, one on his local influence, and then I even do one for, like, Europe and, and other parts of the world, which, you know, less relevant for the American audience, but, uh, you know, try to be as comprehensive as possible. Um, and then one chapter, actually, it's, it's on Soros' influence in Ukraine, uh, and it's largely an expansion of your last book, Follow the Money, um, particularly Soros' meddling in 
Ukraine and, and the role that played in the Trump impeachment. So I, I, I died. Wait, that, that. Matt, that part, yeah. you and I have spoken about extensively. We're talking to yeah. Matt Palumbo, author of the book, Man Behind the Curtain, Inside the Secret Network of George Soros. It's one of the hottest books out there now. That part fascinates me because yeah. it's clear if, if you, you know, in my book, I did a lot of homework on this. But you kind of expound on it, how it appears that the Soros network, you know, was working with the Obama administration and, you know, with a wink and a nod going after Soros's own business partners and implying it was all done for like open society or whatever, you yeah. know. Yeah, it, it, I mean, to give a very brief summary of that, there's all these anti-corruption and, and like most things that uh, Soros is, is invested in, is, you know, are ironically titled. So, you know, quote unquote, anti-corruption organizations that Soros played a role in. And if you look at the footnotes for the whistleblower complaint, and it's very specific to a lot of the uh, uh, turned out to be bogus claims about Rudy Giuliani. Um, that were cited, they were actually all linked to one of those Soros-backed uh, organizations. Um, and that's just you know, part of it. It's a, obviously a much more extensive chapter than that. But, yeah, there's a lot of uh, – and actually, when, even when we did Spygate, uh, when everyone was talking about Russia, there was that political article sort of uh, – and they were the, the only ones talking about it. I think the headline was, like, Ukrainian efforts to sabotage Trump backfire. Right. Uh, that was, right. Now the left wants to make that article go away. Yeah. Yeah, that was 2016. It did not stop since then. So, yeah, it was uh, yeah. Uh, a lot on that. And then as to the most important chapter, and I, we talked about this the last time I was on, uh, it's all the law and order stuff. Um, you know, all politics is local. Uh, Soros can move the needle by spending, you know, a million dollars on a DA race more than he can by spending $100 million on a presidential election. And you can look at, you know, any time you see a story where it's, you know, some cr- criminal gets off easily and you're going, are you kidding me? How is this real? There's probably a 100 percent chance to Soros back DA. This whole uh, so-called progressive <laughs> so prosecutors sad. movement is all him. Yeah, it's so sad. We're talking to Matt Palumbo, author of uh, a really an eye opening book, Man Behind the Curtain, Inside the Secret Network of George Soros. Matt, what about the Biden administration? Any connections between Soros and members of the Biden administration now? Yeah, and so the, the criteria I use for, like, when I say someone is Soros-linked is they have to have served on a board of someone, like a Soros-backed organization. Um, so, that, you know, there's more of a direct link to Soros. I don't want it to be, like, you know, a friend of a friend of a friend who knows Right, Soros. right, right. You're, you're uh, doing actual reporting, unlike the media. Co- correct. Right. Correct. So in the, the transition, Biden's transition team, there's about two dozen or so, uh, a little less than that, a Soros-linked people. Um, within the administration, Neera Tandon and Ron Klain, whose jobs seem to just be, like, tweeting about Biden all day, they're both Soros-linked. The strongest is actually Anthony Blinken. Now, Blinken's parents are both friends of Soros, have been photographed with him. If you go in uh, so, uh, the Open Society Foundation, which is Soros's group, uh, you look at their annual reports. Both their names are listed in there kind of high in the hierarchy within the organization. Um, there's, a, there's actually a library at a Soros-created uh, university in Europe that's named after them. So, so Blinken's family is tied to Soros. Oh. And one of the first things... Blinken did after kicking office was he passed sanctions against this guy named Sally Barisha, who was the former president and prime minister of Ukraine. And guess what? Barisha is a very uh, outspoken critic of George Soros. Now, uh, the, the claim or the, the justification for the sanctions was all these allegations that, of corruption that went back 10 years that apparently Obama didn't notice. Um, but you look at the source material. It's a group called the East West Management Institute, which, guess what, was co-founded by George Soros. So uh, that's either the biggest coincidence in the world or Soros is right. clearly uh, influencing this guy. I want to get to the media organizations next, but right before I came on the air today, uh, I saw a fascinating article by uh, Mr. Vasquez over at Newsbusters, who does great work on these so-called fact checkers, who you and I both find 
Hilarious. Uh, it's that guy, Tom, yeah. whatever. Who's Tom, the world's worst fact checker? Or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We, yeah. Me, me and you have had a blast with him. But uh, it was talking about the Soros Network, uh, you know, relationship to the Pointer Institute, Pierre Omidyar, and all these others. So this is their new thing, too, Soros and the left wing, right? So-called fact checkers who, as Facebook indicated yeah. in a legal oh. filing, are really just opinion checkers. Get one of them, and it, it's as if they're trolling us with the name. The latest one he created is called Good Information Incorporated. Like, the most Orwellian <laughs> thing. Like, it has to be. They have to be clowning on us knowing we're reacting this way to it. Um, but, yeah, and, and the, you know, you, you can just look at, like, who the fact checkers choose to fact check and the type of claims. So, like, even the ones that fact check Republicans um, or, or even fact check Democrats, like, they'll fact check a statement that is probably true. Well, when it's a Republican, they're more likely to the fact check something more controversial to make it more likely it appears there's more negative fact checks of Republicans. Um, and we've seen even on PolitiFact where, you know, we will they'll fact check a decimal point effectively. So uh, right. it, it is a rigged system. And, and there's been I mean, I, I was joking to you, I could probably do a book on fact-checking fact-checkers. So I actually went through all the writing I've done on your site in that theme. And I think it's like I got 30,000 words just on that. So, And that's just what I caught. So, yeah, they're, they're not... Let's take a poll, Matt. I want, yeah. I want everyone to buy your book now. It's called Man Behind the Curtain, Inside the Secretive Network, the Secret Network of George Soros. But I want to do a poll, folks. Send us an email. Do you think Matt's next book should be on all of the debunking he's done, ironically, of fact checkers. Because believe me, I work with Matt every day. And let me, the Jim's raising his hand. It's Mike, you, you, what are you? So we're two for two. Jim and Mike are both like, let's do it. But let's focus on this book here for a second. So media organizations, um, any connection between them and, uh, and Soros in, in the book here? Yeah, so I have a, a pretty lengthy bullet point list, and I divide it by, like, you know, radio, print, uh, you know, various forms of, of media. Um, just some of, like, the, the known ones are, like, New York Times, L.A. Times, Wall Street Journal, CNN, Fortune, ABC, NPR, Associated Press, USA Today, Washington Post. And it shows up in their coverage. Uh, actually, one I missed, and this is a good example to show how it influences their coverage, is ProPublica, which gets about 2% of their funding from Soros. They're uh, sort of billed as an investigative outlet. And they recently did a report on, you know, arguing that billionaires aren't paying enough taxes. They talk about, like, Musk, Bezos, Gates, and very, very extensive reporting on them. When they get to Soros, it's two paragraphs, and the second paragraph is just a statement saying that ProPublica is wrong, and they don't challenge it. And I, I looked into it. They claim that Soros, like, evaded taxes last year, but his fund didn't make any money. Um, so I just looked up looked it up is that they have to report to the sec and they did in fact make money so like you can kind of get you know when it's a soros funded organization reporting on soros he can give them any excuse and they'll just report it mindlessly um and you can you know type soros's name into the search bar in any of those places i just listed and if there's ever a criticism of soros they're covering it's only to say that it's anti-semitic it's not to actually engage with the claim at all which which matt is is honestly is is so ridiculous that even restating it is an embarrassment. I mean, you're talking about a Democrat party, liberal wing of the Democrat party that, that openly celebrates Ilhan Omar and, and yeah. some of the anti-Semitism. And then they're claiming us for exposing a guy who whatever religion yeah. he practices or doesn't has nothing to do with the substance we're talking about now. And, and, and that's how I know just this, just move right on. Don't even like I, that oh, goes right. Cause it's so dumb. It's not even worth entertaining, you know? 
Well, they don't even believe it either. Like, they were just uh, trying to cancel Lara Logan for comparing Fauci to that Nazi doctor. And I'm going, listen, like, if you're against Nazi comparisons, I don't know where you guys were the past four years when that's all you did. Oh, you my just, gosh. Just put just right, just put in the search engine. Trump, yeah. Nazi. You'll get a thousand ones. I want to get this last question in, Matt. We're talking sure. to Matt Palumbo, author of Man Behind the Curtain, Inside the Secret Network of George Soros. His book has been a... Uh, it been flying off the shelves, believe me. Last question. So Soros, is um, is he positioning himself to keep these organizations going, um, you know, for a very, very long time, George Soros? I mean, his influence is, it, it's nothing to be sneezed at. He knows what he's doing. Yeah, so he's, over his career, spent about $20 billion. Uh, in the past few years, he's donated about 30 or $32 billion to his own foundation, so the amount he's donated to, you know, presumably be spent, after, you know, in his last years and after death, is greater than the amount he spent so far. Uh, but he's also set up all these different networks. He's set up a, a university network called the uh, Open Society University Network that does, you know, quote unquote research to further his cause. Um, and it does seem like his sons are being positioned to kind of take over the organization. So yeah, well, you know, Soros' uh, ideology and influence is definitely going to outlive him for sure. You know, it was a classic, and I got to run. I got like twenty seconds left. But when sure. the cat lady Nandini Jammy, the the free speech hater, when uh, she openly celebrated on Twitter her her affiliation with Soros, and then we called her a Soros stooge, and she was like, "That's a conspiracy theory." I'm like, really? <laughs> we're just we're literally like citing your own tweet. So that's just uh, that's another one. This is Matt Palumbo. You've been listening to him. That was. He has a new book out about George Soros, Man Behind the Curtain, Inside the Secret Network of George Soros. Matt, thanks a lot for joining us. We'll uh, definitely have you back. Keep us updated, obviously, on how the book does. So we appreciate your time. Thanks, Dan. My pleasure. You got it. Yeah, folks, I'm telling you, the book has been uh, hard to keep in stock, but it's out there now. Uh, it's George Soros' book by Matt Palumbo. Check it out. It will open your eyes as to where the influence networks are. They always complain about money influencing politics. They don't seem to care when it's left this money, though. Check the book out. You'll love it. That was Matt Palumbo. That was our interview with Matt Palumbo from the radio show last week. Here's an interview we did with Julie Kelly from American Greatness. We talked to her about her book, January 6th. It's a really exhaustive study about exactly what happened on January 6th. The people in prison because of it, the people who are targeted, and the people who are not targeted. Yes, here we are. I say we because it's not just me coming back. We have a guest, as we usually do in this segment. Our friend Julie Kelly has a great new book out. Julie, welcome to the Dan Bongino Show. We appreciate you taking the time. I appreciate your having me on. Thanks so much, Dan. So let's get the title of the book. You can get it wherever you purchase your books. It's called January 6th, How the Democrats Use the Capitol Protest to Launch a War on Terror on the Political Right. That pretty much uh, sums it up. Julie, tell us about the book. And um, does this emulate the Rahm Emanuel um, never let a crisis go to waste strategy by the uh, by the left? Well, I'll take it a step further. It is how to create a crisis to then take advantage of it over your political opponents. And what Mm. I suggest in my book, Dan, is that most of what we saw on January 6th uh, was an inside operation that Nancy Pelosi and Muriel Bowser left the Capitol intentionally unsecure that day, that there were FBI informants and agents months before January 6th who had infiltrated some of these alleged militia groups, and that Capitol Police let protesters into the building on several occasions. And a lot of the confrontations we saw between protesters and police were actually initiated by D.C. Metro and Capitol Police. So 
a lot of people, what we saw that day doesn't match up to the reality of what happened behind the scenes, both before and on January 6th. We're talking to Julie Kelly. Julie, tell me about Ray Epps. Um, listen, I, I was a federal agent for a while. I, I, you know, and I hate saying that, but it does just to establish a bit of bona fides here. It's a little weird, this case. You know, at one point, it appears they, the FBI had him on some kind of, you know, watch list looking for him or something. A very strange case. I mean, he's on video. We can all see it, you know, digitally recorded, saying we're going to go to the Capitol. People are saying, Fed, Fed, Fed. No, you know, we're not going to do that. Multiple times, he seems to be whispering in people's ears, and then these people do things. They're, they're out there. They're pushing barricades after that. Some of these guys... What's your best take on what's going on there with Epps and the FBI? Well, it's definitely a sketchy story. And most importantly, because the people who are trying to protect Ray Epps can't keep their own story straight. So let's remember that it was based on the reporting of Darren Beatty at Revolver.News, who found Ray Epps, all this video, and then noted that he was still on the FBI most wanted list. Well, suddenly Ray Epps disappears from the FBI most wanted list, even though he clearly is inciting and provoking people into criminal behavior that day, including Ryan Samsel, who's the first man Ryan Epps whispers in his ears. And Ryan Samsel is really the first person to breach the exterior perimeter uh, police line. And so then we were all, all the, you know, Merrick Garland wouldn't answer questions about who Ray Epps was. FBI officials won't answer questions. So this kept getting attention. All of a sudden, the January 6th committee comes out and Anna Kinzinger saying, oh, he's not a federal agent. We talked to him at the committee. This is another conspiracy theory, et cetera. Well, then what happens this week? The January 6th committee announces Ray Epps is coming in to sit down for a formal interview under oath, and his attorney says he is not an FBI agent or informant. Well, that doesn't mean he wasn't over a year ago. So still a lot of unanswered questions, but the cover-up and sudden white knighting of Ray Epps by all the wrong people should certainly raise a lot more suspicions about his role and ties to to the government. Well, I, I find his case, we're talking to Julie Kelly, author of the new book, How Democrats Use the Capitol Protest, excuse me, the title of the book is January 6th by Julie Kelly, Standard spelling, can't mess it up, go pick it up. How Dems use a capital protest to launch a war on terror on the political right. What I find confusing about the case is, Julie, when we, um, it's not uncommon to dismiss charges against some people and, and, and prior targets make them non-targets because they become cooperators, right? So you're investing a counterfeiting case, you get the middleman, he gives up the supplier of the counterfeit. Eventually you go into a cooperation agreement with them and, the AUSA, the assistant to the United States attorney, will you know, likely not agree not to prosecute, right? You don't make those decisions. The, the attorney does for the government, the AUSA. But what's strange about Epps is, you know, we were told, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, this is, you know, the greatest threat to the United States since Pearl Harbor, since 9-11. This was an insurrect. The government was about to fall, Julie. This was a, an insurrect. They're words. I mean, I'm not making this up. I mean, no one knows more about it than you. It was an insurrection. We should all be horrified. It can happen again. The government's collapsing tomorrow. Uh, these evil militias are out there planning for all this stuff. Uh, yet you have a guy literally on video, like we said, clearly instigating this. It's not a conspiracy theory. We can see it. And yet he seems to have escaped scrutiny, which says to me, oh, maybe he he was a cooperator. But then he's saying with his lawyer that, no, we're not cooperating and we're not an informant here. So what gives? And I think a potential third option they should ask him. Tell me if you think I'm crazy here is 
Not just were you an informant for the FBI, but were you an informant for anyone in the federal government? That's right, because they're very careful to parse their uh, their denial with the fact he was not tied to law enforcement. Well, you know this, Dan. He could be a government asset for any agency, local or federal. He could be part of the intelligence community or military. Um, some people have even suggested he was a crisis actor working with the Democrats, the DNC. And, of course, well, all we have to do is go back to the Russia collusion hoax to see how they used political operatives to promote a destructive narrative against Donald Trump. So we'll see. Well, why won't they? Why won't the January 6th committee interview him under oath in public? If it's important to get the truth, quote unquote, truth to the American people about what happened that day, let's start with Ray Epps. Talk about what he did, why he is escaping charges, who, if anyone, he was working with, and why more than a year later he remains uncharged. When Dan, just this week, three more men in Illinois charged with four misdemeanors. The FBI rounded them up charge them they're going to be facing charges possible short prison sentences for just being in the wrong place at the wrong time ray Epps certainly was too in a restricted area outside the capitol building so they're really having a hard time explaining why so many others now 720 people have been charged arrested and charged but ray Epps uh, still is a free man doesn't make a lot of sense no it doesn't we're talking to julie kelly author of the book january 6th no, it doesn't. And uh, I, I really, I genuinely find it puzzling for all the reasons I just stated. I've, I've never seen. And, and you know what's bizarre, Julie, how, you know, the, the, the ACLU and others that, you know, the ACLU who literally defended the Ku Klux Klan once because they said, hey, their speech sucks. But, you know, speech is speech and we got to defend it even when we don't like it. Right. That's what the ACLU used to do is defend free speech. Where are they on this? Like, why aren't people on the left asking questions? I mean, the left, the whole hippie generation, Julie, was skeptical of concentrated power in big government. Now you've got this guy on video doing And, and let me be clear, folks. I, I honestly got I have no inside info whatsoever on who Ray Epps was. None. Ray Epps could just be a dude who got caught on tape and the government didn't care. I don't know. I'm just telling you. What Julie's doing in asking questions is doing the nation a service that the media used to do, Julie, but they don't seem to care. And even worse, they don't seem to care about the treatment of the January 6th prisoners either. All these prison reform advocates, oh, prison reform. We've got too many people in jail. We got to get them. Yet, when you talk about January 6th, they're like, throw them in the cell, feed them dead rodents. I mean, what a bunch of frauds. And let's keep in mind, the people who are detained right now, as I explain in my book, in this D.C. gulag, which has been open just for January 6th defendants, Dan, they have not been convicted of any crime. They are there denied bail at the request of Joe Biden's Justice Department with the consent of D.C. district court judges. And we're talking everyone from Reagan appointees, Obama, all the way to Trump appointees, signing off on pretrial detention orders to keep these men behind bars. Their trials keep getting moved. I just listened to a trial this week, a man who has turned himself in over a year ago. His trial was supposed to start February 24th. It now has been moved to April 20th. Judge Emmett Sullivan, yes, that judge, didn't even consider, flatly rejected the idea of allowing him out of prison, awaiting a trial that he just moved up back another two months. They are political prisoners. No one is speaking out for them. Not only no one on the left you know, human rights activists or prison rights activists, but 
we're not hearing a lot from our own Republican leadership. No, that's right. Now have that's right. For over a year. That's right. And that's a darn good point you made. I mean, if really, are we going to stand by what we believe in or not? I mean, what is this? We're only going to do it when it's like, oh, but the New York Times is going to approve of it. I mean, these are the kind of things we're supposed to speak out. I mean, everyone is entitled to due process. And you know what? For all you lefty, phony, fake fraud zeros who listen to the show, oh, Dan, you're being a hypocrite. Really? When Andrew Cuomo was accused of all these dastardly things he was accused of, Jim, did we not say on this show, the man deserves his day in court? I believe evidence. I don't believe people. I believe evidence. And what? You were at a, you were at there on January 6th. You're not entitled to, no, no, no. You go to jail forever. You can rot in Hades. It's so phony and fraud. All right. I'm gonna, I don't want to get, I don't want to get to your book. Julie Kelly, author of January 6th. It's the, it's a great book. It's really been selling like crazy. You know what I find particularly hypocritical, Julie? Remember the siege on the White House, the BLM siege on the White House, where they had to literally evacuate Donald Trump? To, and then the left thought it was hilarious, Julie. Remember that insurrection? Bunker boy making fun of Donald Trump. I have Secret Service friends. They were telling me that was a critical, mission-critical evacuation. And yet the left thought it was hilarious. Oh, Donald Trump in the bunker. Remember that insurrection? Julie, how many of them are in that jail, those insurrectionists at the White House, under the same condition? Just a rough number. 50, 100, the people who engaged in that insurrection? at the White House. What do you think? I know you're going to be shocked. It is a round number. I will give you that. <laughs> right. Zero. That's that's. I am stunned. Jim's that, shocked too. Doing, He's choking on his sandwich right now. Right. Go ahead, they were sorry. doing a lot of the same things. Actually worse. Federal police officers were attacked and assaulted. Thrown Weapons were used against them. They destroyed, attempted to destroy federal property. They were burning down Washington, D.C. None of them are in a special gulag. To the contrary, a lot of those cases have been dropped. But yet you have men, nonviolent offenders, by the way. There are even men in this D.C. gulag who are charged with no violent crime, no weapons violation, no attacking police officers, not even damaging any property in the Capitol. But yet they are now going to be in jail at least 18 months before they have a chance to defend themselves Stunning. in court. Their six, six, uh, uh, six a uh, rights are violated. Their Eighth Amendment rights are violated. Certainly their First Amendment rights. Um, but yet where are the constitutional experts talking about? Uh, you know, hey, no, nowhere. No, you're right, Julie. And just to be I want to get one final plug in for your book before we go. But just a final point here. Uh, so just to be clear, you can try to burn down a courthouse, federal courthouse in Portland with people inside. You can attack the White House to the point where the president has to be evacuated, burn down American cities and openly call for violence and the destruction of property. You can actually set up an autonomous zone in the middle of Seattle and call it the chop, right? But that's not an insurrection. But walk into the Capitol and what, trespass, there you go. You're in jail forever. The gulag, you, they're sending you to the Bane gulag, Jim, from the dark. Remember the Bane gulag with that guy who cracks Batman's back? That's where you have to go. Julie Kelly, your book, January 6th, How the Democrats Use the Capitol Protest to Launch a War on Terror on the Political Right. Folks, a must-read by the great Julie Kelly, who has been on this like white on rice. Julie, thanks for your time. We will most definitely have you back. Good luck with the book. Love to. Thank you so much, Dan. Really appreciate it. You got it. You got it. No problem. There you go, folks. The truth matters. Julie Kelly doing the reporting the left used to do. That's reporting on their, quote, unpopular causes because the truth mattered. No more. No more. Burned out a courthouse in Portland. You're A-OK. Walk in the Capitol. Oh, man, get rid of that guy. Put him in the Bane Gulag. 
Put him in the, put him in the bank. Make him, make him do the jump, the leap, you know, the Batman leap to get out of there. Unbelievable. That was Julie Kelly from the radio show last week. You can hear me every day, weekday, across the country in over 300 stations. Go to Bongino.com and click on Station Finder to find out where I'm on near you. Thanks for listening. It's Dan Bongino. We appreciate it. You just heard Dan Bongino.